This is a recording from the University of Virginia and the More Than the Score lecture series made possible by the University of Virginia's Office of Engagement's Alumni Education Program. The November 12, 2011 lecture is introduced by Tom Falders, the president of the UVA Alumni Association. Good morning. I have a great honor of introducing a good friend and arguably the best dean of nursing in the entire country. Wow. <clears throat> nice. Dory Fontaine. So anything I say after that is getting climactic, isn't it? <clears throat> um, I, have a, I have a bio for, but what I want to do is pick out a few things that I thought were particularly relevant. Um, she, of course, um, uh, went through her normal academic regimen uh, with the um, starting at Villanova and then going to um, where? Maryland. Maryland and then Georgetown. So she's been primarily in East Coast, but where she really came to, to fame was in her stint as, uh, as assistant dean at uh, the University of San Francisco Nursing School, which is one of the best in the country. And that's where she came to notoriety, and that's obviously where we uh, became aware of her and, um, and uh, picked, were lucky enough to pick her up. Uh, she particularly focuses on uh, her teaching centers on uh, issues related to critical care, uh, including sleep promotion, which some of us can use, uh, pain relief, and family presence at the end of life. Most recently, she's investigated strategies to promote, promote nursing education, partnerships, diversity, and interprofessional education in university settings. Her priority as, as dean of nursing at UVA includes continued work in promoting healthy workplace environments, building more interprofessional collaborations, and increasing diversity both on the faculty and student populations. Um, in the past, uh, Dory has been the president of the American Association of Critical Care Nurses, AACN, for those of you who know about that, and the largest specialty nursing organization in the world. And that association recognized her contributions with its Lifetime Member Award. She's also been inducted to the American Academy of Nursing in 1995 and received the presidential citation uh, from the Society of Critical Care Medicine and is a member of the Sigma Theta Tau Nursing Honor Society. Please uh, welcome Doria Fontaine. Oh, thank you. That's great, Tom. Thank you. Well, thanks, everybody. I'm so glad that you could all be here today. Um, I love talking about nursing. I appreciate that kind introduction. I don't know if I'm the best dean of nursing, but I'm certainly one of the most passionate about University of Virginia, that's for sure. And I just wanted to say I brought, I brought my cards that if anybody here is not a nurse but is interested in becoming a nurse, knows somebody that wants to be a nurse, um, would like me to talk about career counseling, would like me to help people get a job in nursing, um, I am available for all of that. Um, so please know, um, I'm just thrilled to be here. So today I've been asked to talk about a very interesting topic, healthcare reform and what will happen with nurse practitioners and physicians in this era of healthcare reform. And so I put a few thoughts together and I know from listening to our wonderful new president, um, Teresa Sullivan, that some of the best parts of these occasions are when we do Q&A. So I'm hoping to end with plenty of time for you to ask questions, challenge me, you know, maybe throw some eggs, whatever, but we'll have a, some lively discussion. And I know there's nurse practitioners in the audience. I imagine there might be a, a couple of physicians, and so we'd love to hear from everyone. Okay, so here's what I would want to talk about today. A little bit about the needs of the public, you know, needs of the public for health care. Nurses and physicians, some data about the workforce. It's actually some scary data 
about what's going to happen. I think some of you realize that, but I think it's worth kind of putting out there and then talking about solutions, of course. Nurse practitioners and physicians as collaborators as we redesign the broken healthcare system. I think everybody would agree to that. And then finally, will healthcare reform really change us? And I'll certainly give you my opinion about what I think, and I'm very interested in yours as well. So I thought I would start with a, a story of here at University of Virginia. I don't know if people know of Dr. Jim Bergen and um, my colleague, Nita Regal. Now, I'm going to be talking mostly about primary care nurse practitioners, but I just wanted to tell you how wonderful um, we have nurse practitioners here in the acute care side at the University of Virginia. Okay, so here's the story. Many people think that nurse practitioners will just take care of sort of the easy patients and the physicians will take care of the hard ones, the tough things. And I just wanted to tell you how these two have worked in their collaborative practice. And certainly I'm a critical care nurse, so I, I am comfortable talking about critical care and um, very sick patients. And so in this practice, part of it, according to Nita and, and Jim Bergen, is where they see heart failure patients, people that are pretty sick. And Dr. Bergen sees probably all the new ones and the other attendings too, um, is my understanding. And then the nurse practitioners that Nita Regal works with, they actually see some of the patients that are unstable and having trouble and kind of they bringing them in and getting their medication stabilized and, and really giving them a lot of care. So they, in some ways, are seeing the, the more difficult patients. And I just wanted to point that out, because I think that might come up at times that people think, oh, nurse practitioners, they're just going to take care of the easy stuff. They have a great collaboration, um, and they keep people out of the hospital. And that's one of the things that nurse practitioners really do well. So these are the roots and the values of everything I'm going to talk about today. I'm really into collaboration, as Tom mentioned. I do research on interprofessional education and collaboration with physicians and nurses. I've had great collaboration in my life. I know there's lots of nurse practitioners here that have had wonderful collaborations as well. But it's all rooted in respect, trust. How do we trust each other? How do we care about each other? Um, competence, everybody has to be competent. And finally, integrity. So part of the need for this talk, I think, is the fact that everybody's thinking about health care. It certainly was in the news a lot up until March 2010 when the Affordable Care Act was passed, and now it continues to be in the news. And I don't really want to get into any ideological turf battles here, but I truly know that even in this audience here in Charlottesville, we've got a lot of differences of opinion about it. So I'm going to focus on um, patients and access to care and what people need rather than get into the the ideology. But, you know, again, feel free at the question and answer session to ask me anything. So it's really, um, God, who's on first? You know, the regulations are being drafted. Who knows what's going to happen in an election year? Um, it's just going to be fascinating. At the end of the day, though, um, as a nurse standing up here for uh, <clears throat> next year will be 40 years I'm a nurse, um, this Affordable Care Act will open up tremendous possibilities for nurses and nursing and access to patients. And that is what I truly believe. So let's look at some numbers. 34,600,000. There's 34 million uninsured in America that could come on the rolls if the Affordable Care Act moves along. There's 600,000 in Virginia. 600,000 individuals that could come on the insured roles that right now have no access to care. 
and I know this from experience having been at the remote area medical clinic last July. The last two Julys I've gone down there, maybe some of you have too. It's usually all over the, the local news and some national news where we take care of something like 2,700 patients um, who have no insurance and that's the only access that they have. So this is kind of the need side of it, the needs of the public here. So here's a comment from a physician um, in Richmond, and I think this is a, a telling comment. I wanted to put it up there right away to let you know that I know there's lots of sides on this. This is a Dr. Galeski, who's primary care doc in Richmond. He says, however one might feel about health care reform, the current trends are pointing in the direction of change. So it's a broken health care system. Whatever happens, we have got to do something to fix it. So nurses and nurse practitioners are poised to help in this change. So what about nurses? And because I know everybody isn't a nurse here, I thought I would start with this. There are 3.1 million nurses in America. This is considerably up from um, even four years ago. We track this every four years. There's 3.1 million nurses in America. I'll tell you a little bit about this woman in the picture here, but I just wanted you to know that nursing is not necessarily clean as far as education goes. There's two-year degrees. People get an associate degree. They're filling the roles right now, putting out many, many nurses in America with an associate degree to the point of about 45% are coming out of associate degree programs. We at UVA and many other schools in our state have a baccalaureate program. That's about 35% of nurses in America right now are baccalaureate prepared. And there's only about 13% that are masters or doctorally prepared, about 1%. And nurse practitioners are part of the masters of what's called advanced practice. Okay, so if you, anybody here wants to be a nurse practitioner, you have to really go to school for four years, or two years, then four years, and then another two years to get a, to get a master's degree in, um, in nursing and ex, extra experience um, in, the, in the setting as well. So this is Lee, Lee Cow here. She is a coming into nursing in a unique way, and about 20% of people are coming into nursing this way, and I thought I would just mention it. She had a degree in another field, like biology. This, in this case, she was into speech, speech therapy. So she, there's a lot of people now that are coming in from accounting, that are coming in from um, engineering, economics. I have someone in my class right now who has a PhD and has done rat research for about 25 years. And she's now coming in, she's sitting in my class. Um, in the clinical nurse leader program. So I just want you to, nursing is not what you think. Um, it's changing. Um, and many people like this are going to go on and become nurse practitioners. And they're well aware of the numbers and the need for primary care in America. All right, so what about nurse practitioners? In our state, there's only about 4,600. There's up to 6,000 advanced practice nurses. And you might have heard of nurse anesthetists. That's one group that's in this rubric, as well as nurse midwives. Um, but there's only about 4,600 in our state, nurse practitioners. Their education, again, there's many schools that produce nurse practitioners. We do here at UVA, Virginia Commonwealth, George, other schools do as well. And it's an extra two years, um, and then it's 700 hours or more of clinical practice out in the field to become a nurse practitioner in either family, pediatrics, that was one of our specialties that UVA started way back in the early 70s. So there's about 160,000 nurse practitioners all over the country. Here in Virginia, we have this number. Many, many more would like to be nurse practitioners. We leave about 1,500 people on waiting lists every year because we do not have enough faculty. OK, 
Okay? So that's an important thing to know. The pipeline is, is tough. All right, so here's the other kind of scary data. We have a shortage of physicians. 100,000 by 2020 we'll need, and we need a million more nurses by 2020. And again, there's 67,000 people on waiting lists in the United States trying to get into nursing. And so what we're trying to do is produce more faculty, grow more schools so we can take more capacity. We've taken over 100 extra nurses since I've been here as a dean in the last three years. So we're all trying to do our part. And our medical school is as well. Steve Dukoski, the dean of medicine here, they're increasing their medical school. I know Virginia Commonwealth the same. And actually there's some new medical schools cropping up and some of you may know more about that than me. So there's a need. Only about 32%, this figure I just found from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, a report on primary care. There's only about 32% of physicians, and primary care is defined very broadly here, family medicine, internal. Um, and I think that often our physician colleagues as medical students, they graduate with a significant amount of debt. These specialties tend to be at the lower end of um, payment. You know, anesthesia, radiology might make more, surgery, for example. Um, and we have to have incentives and good incentives to help our medical school colleagues decide to go into primary care and work with us as nurse practitioners. Our school, Randy Canterbury is our associate dean here, and he told me that last year about 45% of our medical school graduates were going into family medicine, primary care, pediatrics. So that's good news. That's actually good news. So the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has also talked about the healthcare workforce and suggested over the decades since the early 80s that the quality of care provided by NPs is comparable to that provided by physicians. And in fact, I can, I can talk about the studies, which I'm not going to do, but I'm happy to share them with you um, if anyone is interested. Over the years, um, the states that have more of a um, open practice for nurse practice, there's been, no, there's been no citing of poor care in any of those states, and I'd like to turn to that in a minute. So what's going on now in nursing, which is very exciting, um, a year ago, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation partnered with the Institute of Medicine, which is the mouthpiece for evidence-based uh, statements about health care. And they put together a group led by Donna Shalala. There were physicians on this group and nurses, and they did this two-year report and came up with the significant messages that we need to allow nurses to practice to the full scope of their education and training. And I can talk more about that, which means that we're training them to take care of all sorts of acute and chronic illnesses. And then in some states, and Virginia is one of them, in some states there have been some severe barriers to practice. The other big message of this report is that we need to have nurses and physicians at the table together as full partners to redesign healthcare. And we are ready, willing, and able to do that. And so those were the two key messages that I wanted to mention in this report. The, the fact that physicians were on this, that nurses were, were on this, leaders, there were um, health insurance leaders, so it was a pretty, pretty um, impressive report. And it's been cited widely, and we are now using a blueprint to activate the report. So this is a, a picture, and I, I want to point out the purple. The purple here are states that have um, practice where nurses can be autonomous, independent practice, okay? Independent practice by nurses, and I wanted you to see that. It's about 16, did I count right? It's about 16 states, and look, look where we are. 
Virginia's in the blue. But look what's right next door to us, Maryland and the District of Columbia that are in purple. And I worked at Georgetown for nine years. I ran the undergrad program there. We had lots of um, nurse practitioners there as well. And, um, and they work as collaborators, but they are allowed to diagnose, treat, provide medications without a supervising physician. So when we train our nurse practitioners in this state in 10 excellent programs, and then they want to care for patients in underserved areas and have to have a licensed physician with them on site, it's a barrier to care. And I'll give you a great example. I had a wonderful colleague who gave us a scholarship for um, a couple of nurses to come from Southwest, that very poor area in Virginia where people have no care. She had a scholarship, she came up to UVA, became an FNP, and she got a job in Appalachia where she lives, but she wasn't able to get a job in the state of Virginia because she did not have a supervising physician. And if she was in Maryland or DC, she could have been taking care of patients, all right? So there's some good news. There is some good news about Virginia, but we have been rated a D, you know, on the scale, on the 4.0 scale of A to F um, for nurse practitioners for access to care. So we're definitely working on that. And I probably should mention here that Bill Hazel, the Secretary of Health um, in Virginia, has been a very strong colleague in this. And Governor McDonald put together a task force last August, um, the Virginia Health Reform Task Force, two last August. Um, and um, indeed, actually it was two Augusts ago, and indeed there were six task force, I was on one of them, and so was Ed Howell, head of the hospital, and Karen Ruban for telehealth. And the upshot of that was the capacity task force said, you know, look, we've got to do something about nurse practitioners and physicians. And he said that while there was great acknowledgement that the practice arena at the local level, you know, nurse practitioners and physician colleagues work very well together at the local level, but organized, organized nursing and medicine, the Medical Society of Virginia was really trying to kind of keep the reins tight. And so Bill Hazel kind of ordered them to get together. And I think they've had some very good dialogue and I wanna to report to you back on some of that as well. This is a picture of my colleague and alum, Joanne Peach. Um, and her practice in Culpeper. And this is where I've gotten the data about Virginia, that the at the practice level, there is some incredible care for patients in a very collaborative way. And that supervisory language, while it affects practice in Virginia, Joanne has assured me that her practice is um, pretty strong and wonderful. And there's a picture of them at the holiday party, nurse practitioners and physician. And there's a picture of when you come into the Culpeper family practice, which is affiliated with the University of Virginia, um, it is a strong practice. And actually, patients can say, I'd like to see Joanne Peach, nurse practitioner, versus the physician colleagues. So I wanted to make sure I pointed that out. So let's talk about solutions before you start asking me questions. So what is the University of Virginia doing? Well, we're certainly implementing the IOM report. So we're right up there preparing leaders to work and sit at the table with our physician colleagues. Um, in fact, one of the first things that the president did here when she got here in 2010, right, was to find out that I wasn't on the Medical Center Operating Board. So the Dean of Medicine is on the Medical Center Operating Board and Mr. Howell, the head of the hospital, is, and she said, well, why aren't you on it? I said, well, I've asked, and they told me I could come and sit in the back of the room, and I said, I'm not gonna go until I'm sitting at the table. And so six weeks, here, she 
put me on the Medical Center Operating Board. So I am now sitting at the table. Actually, she put herself on, too. Um, so she's on. She said, Dory, this is important. You know, and her mother is a nurse, and her mother-in-law was a nurse. So Miss um, Sullivan truly gets it about health care. You just need to know that. And so we're, we're having a good time together on the Medical Center Operating Board. So we're implementing this report that nurses and physicians should sit at the highest levels of organizations and be together to redesign healthcare for America. We're also increasing the numbers of nurse practitioners, and we're working with our colleagues in the legislative arena um, to talk about scope of practice and what we can be doing. We also have um, many uh, nurse practitioners, as I said, and we're designing new models of care in the hospital as well as out of the hospital. You know, pretty soon, if we have patients coming back and coming back into the hospital, we're not going to be um, reimbursed for that care. So there's a lot of important roles that nurses can have in all of this. All right, so one of the most exciting things is interprofessional education. I know our colleagues at VCU, Virginia Commonwealth, I guess I can say that on the tape. Am I allowed to say another university in uh, Virginia? They're doing good things, too, because some of you might be from Richmond. We often get a lot of wonderful people from Richmond. And, you know, we're all in this together in healthcare reform. So one of the exciting things is what we're doing in the education arena, which is to help nursing students and medical students feel a kinship with each other and understand each other's roles to grow the respect so that when they're out in practice, they truly will be colleagues um, and work well together. So that's what we're doing. This is a picture of Kim on your left there as a medical student, and Mary Lacey is my nursing student, and they were together at the RAM clinic for 30 hours taking care of patients side by side. And so this is kind of a new day, a new day. So what is interprofessional education? This is where people, instead of you know, having a lecture um, where they might be sitting together, um, it really is interacting at a very deep level over cases, um, over simulations, and I can certainly tell you a little bit more about it. We just got a grant from the Macy Foundation, a three-quarters of a million dollar grant, to do this very unique work to take third-year medical students, every single one at UVA, and third-year nursing students, and put them through several um, cases and simulations. One of them is called Difficult Conversations, how you give a patient and a patient's family bad news at the end of life. And they're training and they're doing this together in simulation. Um, sepsis is another one. We don't want people. 50% of patients die of sepsis in the ICU, my specialty. So how are we going to fix that? Well, we're going to fix it when we have better communication, we know how to implement the evidence, and we don't have, you know, cowboys and cowgirls going off on their own. Um, and so the way we've decided to do this is to train people together. And I think it's going to work. At least the Macy Foundation is trusting us that this is going to work, and we're getting lots of good press on this as a school at the University of Virginia. And Dean Dukoski and I are absolutely leading, um, leading this initiative. Here's a picture at UVA, what we're doing. This is where our nursing students who've learned certain skills, putting in IVs, et cetera, they're teaching first-year medical students. Again, kind of interprofessional education. These are things that should be no-brainers. But I got to tell you that they get to be what? They get to be friends. They see each other on the ward. Um, and so it makes it um, a lot better for relationships. And it's not about relationships with healthcare, with nurses and physicians. It is only about relationships. And I can tell you this from my many years as an ICU nurse. It's very, very hard to collaborate with someone when you don't know their name, 
when you don't know that they've got to leave early because they've got two kids and they want to see that soccer game. You know, we all need to care about each other as healthcare professionals, and the patients will get better care. So it's only about the relationships we form. So that's why I want to go back to this. I mean, I started with um, Nita Regal and Jim Bergen, who run that heart failure and do some wonderful, wonderful work here. And I guarantee you that their patients can feel the care that they have for each other, and they see it demonstrated in, um, in, in their recovery. So it's all about the patient. I didn't use the word patient a lot in this, but it truly is. The healthcare reform that's going to happen is when we put the patient at the center and we argue and take the very best care of the patient and families. And we can do a lot better with that. And nurses have some incredibly wonderful ideas. And we need to partner with our physician colleagues um, to work better together. And so on this note, I wanted to say that you know, Bill Hazel was right. The Medical Society of Virginia needed to talk with the Virginia Council of Nurse Practitioners, and they had a, a summer together. And as of Thursday, I found out that there's going to be some new legislation introduced, and it's going to remove that barrier to practice in the state of Virginia. Now, it's, it's, it's going to remove some of the barriers. The new buzzwords are it's not supervisory anymore. It's going to be about team-led, physician team-led um, management. And the nurse practitioners, instead of having a one-to-four ratio, it's going to be a one-to-six ratio. They don't necessarily have to be on site. It could be via telemedicine. Now, all of this has to be legislated, but the dialogue, I believe, between that physician group and the nurse practitioner group, I think, was very healthy and something I'm sure Bill Hazel and, and the governor who put this task force together is appreciative of. So stay tuned for that. Okay, so what I'm suggesting is that we have to have a new paradigm. We have to have new ways of thinking. How are we going to take care of 600,000 people in Virginia who want health care who are not getting it right now? I have nurses who are ready and willing to step up and do this care. And we know there are physicians out there that want to partner with us. So it's a new day. So I love this quote. Be not afraid of going slowly. Be only afraid of standing still. So for 36 years, the Nurse Practice Act in the state of Virginia has been standing still. And now I think we're going slowly, but I think it's a new day. And I think it's a very positive day for patients and families in the state of Virginia. So I want to end on this. Um, this is a porcupine. I don't know that you've seen porcupines much, maybe in the zoo. But this was a quote from a book I had gotten, uh, Bill Moyer's book, The World of Ideas. And it, it said the, the story that goes along with this porcupine, which hopefully you'll think about, is that on one very cold day, there were a group of porcupines. <clears throat> and they were shuffling in and out, trying to get warm. Okay, Now you can imagine, it's probably not that easy as a por porcupine, shuffling in and out, until they found the right place where they could warm each other without getting pricked. And I will suggest to you that what we want to have in the state of Virginia is nurse practitioners, a new day where nurse practitioners partner with our physician colleagues who we respect greatly and who do definitely trust us, as does the American public. We're going to have a new day. We're going to warm each other for the benefit of our patients and families and not get pricked. So on that note, I'm going to stop for questions. And this is it's so great that I said, let's do it at the Duke game, because next week is National Nurse Practitioner Week. 
So I want to stop there and take any questions that you may have. And I just wanted to warn you, there are a couple of nurses in the audience that will help me if we need it. So it's just 10.30, so we have plenty of time for questions. Who would like to start? And I will repeat the question, because I know we're being taped. Yes, sir. Do you, want, do you mind standing up so everybody can hear you? Right. Um, the gentleman's asking about the uh, <clears throat> shortage and the access before 2020. You know, we have issues right now. I gave you one story. Um, and I think some of the, the fixes that they're talking about, which is to increase medical school enrollments and other things, those, those are pipeline. Those are eight and ten year strategies. So I think you're right to worry. What, <clears throat> what we're working on now as a state of Virginia, I think, is to open up some barriers to practice so we can get some nurse practitioner, more nurse practitioners down in some of these areas, the underserved areas. But we also have to be like this porcupine analogy and look at how we work together now um, to really solidify some of the relationships and really call it into question, you know? Others? Yes, sir. Do you mind standing? Okay, that's great. The, qu the question was, what are the four specialties in our nurse practitioner program? And certainly there's others. We have family nurse practitioner, which is the most popular. We have pediatric nurse practitioner, which is also very popular. And, you know, pediatric um, <clears throat> nurse practitioners, they were the very first one, 1965. Can you imagine? A lot of people think nurse practitioners are new, but they've been here. Pediatrics have been here. The other one is acute care nurse practitioners. And finally, we have psychiatric mental health nurse practitioners. And I would just like to put in a good word for them. Um, you need to know there are 40 in the state. Now, you only have to look at the homeless that are around in Charlottesville to know we need some psychiatric nurse practitioners. There are a few jobs, unfortunately, for these psychiatric nurse practitioners. But I would love to grow that program. I would love to grow that program. In fact, the representatives from the state have talked to me about it as well. So we need to get the jobs out there also. <clears throat> so those are the four we have. We've had in the past gerontology nurse practitioners. Now that's really more under the adult. Um, but family nurse practitioner, that's cradle to grave. Um, they can take care of um, every age. And they're very, very versatile. Um, and they do really well. And I don't know if anybody's going to ask me about the retail or the minute clinics or the nurse practitioners that are in the CVS, but maybe they will, and I'll hold any comments I'll make about that. Yes, uh, Dottie. I want to ask you two questions. One is, um, I think that all along the focus of medicine and nursing and whatever has been on treatment. Mm -hmm. And I believe mm. that if you would ever get to prevention, right. then, uh, and spend the money and mm -hmm. the time mm -hmm. and talk to the insurance companies or whatever to put money into prevention, mm -hmm. then we may not have to have as much treatment and prevention mm -hmm. is much easier to deal with. Sure. The second thing is, can you talk to us about what the public can do mm -hmm. to advocate to mm -hmm. get these two groups together? That's a great, those are um, wonderful. Because, uh, the consumer. Public. And right. the consumer is why yeah. it needs to be addressed. And so as mm -hmm. the public, mm -hmm. can you talk to us about what we can do to get these people Sure. Thank you very much. Um, Dottie is one of our alums from the School of Nursing a couple of years ago. Um, thank you, Dottie. The um, prevention question is a wonderful one. And actually, much of the nurse practitioner curriculum 
is truly about prevention and keeping people out of the hospital. You have only to look at the obesity epidemic, um, the diabetic epidemic, um, <clears throat> people are still smoking, um, and the roles for nurse practice. This is a lot of what our curriculum in schools of nursing is about. Um, the promise of prevention, the public, you know, we are waiting for the promise of prevention um, to really show up in some of the cost data. I'm not sure that we've seen that yet, but in individual lives, it certainly has an effect. And many nurses want to do that. Um, in fact, nurses that are in busy practices, they are known for the health education, prevention, and teaching. And it really is about getting to know the, the patient as a person and finding out about their life, because it's not one size fits all, um, as, you, as you well know. The second question was about what can the public do? Well, I think you could help us with the uh, legislation when it begins. Next summer, if this, um, it's going to have a period of um, comment, <clears throat> and um, it's going to be going into um, some legislative groups, and you can write to your legislator where, in whatever district you are and talk about access to care for the state of Virginia and what that could mean. I think that would be really helpful. Yes, Carolyn. Hmm. I don't really have a question, but I'd like to comment on the change in the legislature. Um, we moved down here a year ago from New Jersey, and I was an adult nurse practitioner in New Jersey. Um, my physician, collaborative physician, would frequently um, leave the clinic. I had to be able to contact him by phone, but he was not always there personally. And the hospital where I worked only had two adult nurse practitioners, but we probably had 20 to 25 psychiatric nurse practitioners. We were wow. one of the largest wow. psychiatric facilities, and they did a lot of the outpatient counseling, counseling and were really linked frequently with social workers and psychologists because the NPs in New Jersey could do the prescriptive part for the mm -hmm. psychologists, and the psychologists, because they weren't psychiatrists, did not prescribe the medication. So that was a great link for your outpatient support for psychiatric care. So I'm really happy to see the changes um, that are, I hope will be forthcoming. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So Carolyn was just talking about the, um, the strength of being in a state where nurses had prescriptive privileges and could take care of many patients, including, sounds like a lot of psychiatric patients as well. Um, I know there's a hand, there's a couple of hands over this gentleman and then you, Sue. Yeah, would you please stand? Okay, he's asking about the IOM report. Did it say something about the time nurse practitioners spend with patients um, and physicians versus the nurses on the floor? Well, nurses in hospital settings, again, that would be a different level of education. Most of them are associate degree or baccalaureate prepared, and nurses in an acute care setting, they might have six patients in med surge. Nurse practitioners, the ones we're talking about here today, are in primary care. And so they are seeing patients along with their physician colleagues. Um, and I, I would have to ask my colleagues whether it's 20 minutes for a visit or an hour for a new patient visit. or It, it just depends. Um, and certainly, um, uh, people get the care that they need in these clinics. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, Sue? Right. Many states have individual collaborative, which implies that direct mm -hmm. visualization in proximity in the clinic is gone. It means I can be somewhere else and you can still do your work. Right. Is there 
Yes, that's exactly what is happening. They're changing the term. The question was, what about the language in the um, Nurse Practice Act that hasn't really been changed for 36 years in Virginia? The language is to remove supervisory and really focus on team-based care. That's going to be the new language. It's all about team-based care. And frankly, we've been working in teams, um, many of us. And so the bottom line is the language that's proposed, I believe, is more about um, physician-led teams, which frankly some people are having some concerns about as well. But you know, I think moving it off of supervisory okay, to management in a team um, is progress. You, know, you have to look about what is moving slowly versus standing still um, in this debate. So thank you for that question. Uh, yes, right here. What you think is the biggest um, reason why physicians maybe are afraid or don't want mm -hmm. to just get rid of mm -hmm. um, the collaboration? Okay. Just completely like in some of the other states where it's sure. The um, question up here was about what did I think that physicians might be afraid of with this language um, <clears throat> of supervisor, of having supervisory go away? And so I might turn it around. Do we have a physician in the house? <laughs> That would like to take that one? Yes, sir. Do you want to answer that question? What, what might physicians in that category, they feel there's a loss of autonomy for physician practice? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. The question, and he's answering it, that what physicians are afraid of is loss of autonomy. Um, and then he, he spoke about the nurse practitioner that's in southwest Virginia. How will that create a team? Well, you know, Virginia is one of the most wired states, and the hope for telemedicine and telehealth might be an answer to that, is what I'll say. I know Karen Ruban here is doing some incredible work with reaching out to that part of the world. Um, so that might be a way to have team-based care. And you know, the way we do Skype and the way people are on the internet now, you know, I think we're diagnosing, diagnosing and treating using the internet and telehealth in some really great ways. And I think Virginia has this potential, and it's untapped. And I think that's one of the ways. Um, but I, I hear your concerns. I hear your concerns. Yes, sir. sir. So I'm listening to you, and I'm, I'm not in the medical field, but I'm listening to you, and yeah. much of your discussion has been on capacity. Right. Increasing capacity. Yes. That's, that's what I'm hearing. Yeah. And so is the, is the issue then with our broken health care system, mm -hmm. which you said everybody agreed with, mm -hmm. is, it, is it totally capacity and perhaps mm -hmm. also preventative? Mm -hmm. it, are those the things that will fix it? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, um, thank you for pointing out to me that everybody might not agree that it's a broken health care system, and I think that's good for you to say that. I appreciate hearing oh, that. Right. I didn't, I didn't say that. I not you personally. I said it. I did say it, though. I did say it. Um, and I said it based on um, some articles I've read from my physician colleagues that actually are saying that. They don't know exactly what to fix or how to fix. But your question about capacity, you know, this is a tough nut to crack. I mean, what I'm saying to you is it takes a long time to, to make a physician, even if we increase enrollments. Um, it, we are having a barrier right now to producing more nurse practitioners, or more nurses in general. I mean, I would love to take more nurses, but there are, we don't have the faculty and we don't have the clinical sites to train them. So it is a bit of a worry. 
is the promise of prevention. Are there new things we can do? Are there new ways that we could look at working together? Could we be more efficient? I think anyone who's had health care recently might suggest that there's probably ways we could. There's a promise of the electronic health record. I know we're going through a lot of growing pains. Um, but there's a promise of that. You know, when I lived in San Francisco, I was at University of California for many years. I was a patient in Kaiser. That was pretty smooth. And they had thousands of nurse practitioners. And it was, it was quick. And they also had your record right there. They could see everybody else you went to. They could make appointments. Um, it, was, it was pretty smooth. So I think there's some promise of prevention. Um, but there's also promise of um, filling the pipeline. And if I can produce more PhD faculty, to serve the needs of Virginia and the world, then we can take more students, you know? I think, Sue, I'm going to let you go once more. Then there's somebody over here. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. There is a, I think you're making a, you're making a good point. Um, care is not necessarily better. When we look across the United States, we have um, pockets, mostly in cities, of nurses and physicians. Care is not necessarily better, um, always, where there's more. Virginia, though, just so you know, is at the bottom of the 50 states. I think we're ranked 40. We were 38 a few years ago in number of nurses per 100,000 population. Okay? Now, people don't realize that. Virginia is top in so many things, which is why I was thrilled to come here. But now that I'm finding out we're at the bottom of infant mortality, a lot of people don't know that. Karen Remley, when she was the secretary, she might still be of health, um, had also indicated that that was a major issue. So there are things that Virginia shouldn't be proud of and we should be working on um, for sure. Yes, I want to let you go back there. Mm -hmm. Thank you. This is a nurse in the hospital, clinical three, who thinks that we should think of creative ways to how we can help teach the next generation. And so I'm very happy to look into some of that. We want to help people get master's degrees and get doctoral degrees, but we realize that many nurses are paying mortgages, sending kids to college. They can't always stop and go back to school to become faculty. So I have partnered with Lorna Facto, the chief nurse at our um, health system, to really look into that more. So thank you for that. Others, yes, over here. You know, I think this Future of Nursing report has really helped us a lot. I think that's part of it, getting it out there. Um, the Center to Champion Nursing in America, the, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. There's high-level groups that are really talking about this. So I think our time, is, our time is absolutely now and here, and we need to do more. Um, I also think that, you know, I hate it when people get sick who I know and love. Um, and we've had some high-profile people. I'm not mentioning any names, but we've had some high-profile people here at the University of Virginia who've had some serious illnesses. They have gotten stunning, stellar, superb care in our health system, and they get it once they're sick. I have somebody in mind right now who, when they were sick in one of our intensive care units, they were asking every single nurse, because this individual teaches a class for my uh, clinical nurse leaders. They were asking every single nurse that came in, are you one of Dory's nurses? Did you go to UVA? Um, and then they were so proud to tell me about this incredible, incredible care that they've gotten. So just so you know, um, I don't want to have to convince people about the value of nursing that way. But um, it sure works. 
I have to tell you, because they totally get it. This is an individual that's been coming to my classes, teaching about leadership and nursing and, um, and doing a great job. But boy, now they know what it means um, to have people save their lives. And I don't know, um, some of you might have seen in June of last year, um, right before the Medical Center Operating Board, there was a nurse named Jackie Griffin that worked at our long-term LTAC hospital, they call it. She has now gone to another state. Somebody said Las Vegas. I'm not really sure why, but got to keep good nurses in Virginia. But in any event, she was on one of these little planes. You know these little, these little planes in Charlottesville that come screaming in here from Charlotte or wherever? Um, she was on one of these little planes, and somebody went into cardiac arrest. So guess guess who had their life saved by a nurse at the University of Virginia um, and went on to tell the story. It was all over the news. Um, so I don't think I have to convince this crowd about the value of nursing, but you know, it is all embedded. It is all embedded. Um, when people are seeking to have a career in nursing and become a nurse practitioner, they need people to say, that is so fabulous, and how can we help you? And where can, can they give me a scholarship that I could give to a student? <laughs> That's what I'm always looking for. Yes, sir. I have like a, two short ones and one thing that I want to give an example with. You showed the map, there were three colors. Yes. And you talked about two colors. Yeah, right. Uh, the light blue. What percentage of nursing are our nurse practitioners? Mm -hmm. And what about the other percentage? Yeah. And, and how important are okay. they to be? Uh, mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, when you talked about shortages, yeah great those are great questions let me see if I can go through them again and, uh, and remember them clearly so the first one was about the map there was the purple which is the 16 states that have the independent practice um, and there's no poor outcomes in those states the light blue there were a handful of states and that is where there's a, those states have where nurse practitioners have to have supervisory authority to prescribe medications. The, the other states have to have supervisory authority to do medications, to do diagnosis, health histories, et cetera, is my understanding of that. Now, the next question was um, the percentage. Yeah, this is fascinating. 3.1 million nurses, okay? A lot of nurses. Um, average age about 46, though, so they're getting older. Um, there are 164,000 nurse practitioners in America. So that's, you know, when you think about it and the needs, and there's only, you know, 4,600 in the state of Virginia, okay, trying to kind of pare it down. We have a lot of people that want to be nurse practitioners. I think we need to help them. We need to help them. And some of these scope of practice changes will do that. People will want to, and we've got to have more faculty then too. And then your last question, we need everybody in the healthcare. The healthcare sector, this is why people are talking to me all the time about becoming a nurse, because guess what? Guess where the jobs are? Guess where the jobs will be? The Bureau of Labor Statistics says they're going to be growing at like 580,000 jobs, okay, over the next coming years. There's not too many other industries that are talking like that, okay? So if somebody is an LPN, we need to help them get to be an RN so that they can make more money and they can do more. We need RNs to get to be nurse practitioners. We need some people with master's degrees to get to be faculty. And then we need um, legislators to consider how they should pay faculty because right now nurse practitioners make a lot more money than faculty. Okay? So it's a, it's a thorny issue. Um, there's often a lot of diversity with licensed practical nurses and so we want 
to increase diversity in the nursing profession because we want the healthcare providers to look like the patients and families we serve. And we get a grade of, you know, F in that, in America as a whole right now, okay? Numbers are increasing, but they're not fast enough. Um, and men is another one. We count men as minority in nursing, by the way. Um, there's 5.7% men in the whole country in nursing. Um, in students, they're like 10 to 20%. I have many more in the graduate program, and this is a good thing, but boy, men, where are you? Are you man enough to be a nurse? I'm looking for you. I'm looking for you. Thank you. Those were great questions. I hope I addressed all of them. Um, do we have time for a couple more? Yes, we do. Um, over here. Um, how about this gentleman, then you? Yes, sir. Uh, earlier in one of the questions, the 800-pound gorilla in the room was mentioned, the health insurance companies. Do you yeah. have a question on business practices of those folks? Um, sure. Go, go right ahead. <laughs> uh, it has to do with the Health uh, Act of 10, and yeah. particularly the part that it deals with pre-existing conditions. Mm. That uh, be a, I think there's a requirement that in order to then participate in the federal plan, mm -hmm. must, you must have received a letter of denial from an insurance mm -hmm. company mm -hmm. because of a pre-existing condition. Let's take diabetes, for example. Right. What, what I've seen in, a, in an actual case so far mm -hmm. is that the business practices are to continue to work with the applicant uh, having different people all claiming to be doc nurses and doctors for the insurance company mm -hmm. call a different time mm -hmm. and ask for more information. In other words, they're not mm -hmm. going to issue such mm -hmm. a letter because mm -hmm. they know that's what triggers the, the uh, ability to then get into the program. Mm -hmm. So do you mm -hmm. see any mm -hmm. work being done in the business practices of, of mm -hmm. the insurers? Mm -hmm. You know, um, this is a good question. It's about business practices of insurers and denying people um, insurance for a pre-existing illness. You know, this is where I think the uh, fairness and the American people have to speak. This is patently unfair. Um, and I think we have to have the public address it. I'm not an insurance expert, but I think when um, part of the um, Affordable Care Act, there was a provision in there that allowed people to keep their 26-year, up to age 26 on the health care roll. I didn't, I didn't hear anybody complaining about that, to be honest with you. Um, and so I believe that there's things that are viewed as very unfair practices, and the, the American public needs to react about that. Um, and that's what will put pressure then on the insurance. We certainly have to all be um, in bed together, so to speak. We're all on the same team. You know, many people, and I'm not one to um, uh, beat up the insurance industry right now, but some of those profits people are feeling are unconscionable when there's so many that don't have, don't have health care. And so keeping people off the rolls because they've got a disease or an illness um, doesn't feel right doesn't feel right. And a healthcare system should be about fairness and equity and quality. Um, and nurses have always said this. You know, the nursing association was behind Medicare when it became a law. And many of our colleagues were not. And I think we sometimes have to look at our history to know that where nurses have stood. Um, and so we will be fighting that um, for sure as a profession. Yes, this gentleman and then over here, please. Each year, are you planning to increase the for your RN program, mm -hmm. we talk a lot about the nurse Yeah, thank you. Money. Sure. You ask me great questions. Do you know, um, we get money from the state, uh, which helps us run 
um, the school of nursing, and that money has been limited. We also um, have tough time with clinical sites. You know, there are seven schools of nursing that use our tiny pediatric inpatient setting over here, and some of my nurse colleagues in the hospital know that. So one of the barriers to me expanding past 350, okay, I have 350 nurses in the undergrad program, and I have another 350 that are getting nurse practitioner and doctoral degrees, which is great. But the reason that it's tough for me to expand right now is not just faculty, but that's a big one, but it's also clinical sites. Everybody is fighting over uh, the same clinical sites. We're doing a lot more simulation now, which means we um, have scenarios where we're taking care of um, simulated patients, which is great. We can do that up to 25%, but at the end of the day, you've got to really be with that patient and family to know what it's like. So um, I would like to expand, but I think I would like to expand programs like that clinical nurse leader. Take people who have a degree in biology or accounting or um, even some engineers, and um, not necessarily that's not, that was not making their hearts sing and turn them into nurses, clinical nurse leaders who can go out there um, and help us change this system and really give compassionate, quality care um, and perhaps more cost effective. So that's why a lot of us are not growing our programs um, because we don't have the faculty or the clinical sites. Um, and we'd love to partner with anyone who has good ideas to think about it because I can generate scholarship money, which is what I do. Um, and I want to give these students scholarships so they can get in, get out, not have a lot of debt, and go on and practice and take care of patients and families. Our students are incredible. We get 500 and, you know, almost 600 applications, and I can only take 67. So can you believe that? We are rejecting perfectly stunning candidates. Um, as I say, if you can't get into UVA, try the Ivy League. So we send people to Penn, Columbia. <laughs> we send our people to Penn and Columbia. And then I always say, please come back for a graduate degree. You know, please come back and get your doctorate with us if you love Charlottesville like we do. So, um, so that's a great question. You know? one more question. Yes, one, okay, I have one more question. You guys have been great. These are really good questions. Yeah. One more question. Who's going to be? Yes, sir. You asked me a tough one last time. Us yeah, those are good questions. You know, the telehealth, the, what I have seen here at the University of Virginia, it is stunning. It's sort of like a Skype. You know, you can see the patient. You can, you can have dermatologists diagnose the skin. Um, the tele, telehealth has really come a long way, and UVA is an absolute leader. Karen Ruban, who is past president of the Telehealth Society, she is a leader, and Virginia is one of the most wired states. We're not taking full advantage of that. So I think we don't have to be so worried, but we need to do studies about it. How does the patient feel? You know, are they thrilled to get the care, um, thrilled to get the diagnosis and treatment, and rather than having to travel six hours um, to a specialist? You know? And I forget your last question. I apologize. 
Oh, the age. Well, you know, it happens for nurses, too. You know, the average age of nurse faculty is way up there. Average age of nurses in the OR is in the 50s. So age of our providers with the baby boomers are all turning these ages, and they are doctors and nurses. So that's going to be an issue. And to be honest with you, you hit the nail on the head. Um, some of the transition to the electronic record hasn't been as easy for um, those of a certain age, and I can put myself in that category. <laughs> but we're all trying because we know it's good for safety. And these young ones, people that are coming into nursing, you know, they are driving the internet like driving a car. They're all over it, um, you know. So we, there's hope for the next generation. Um, I think I had a last question, but I can let you be the last because I have, actually have the microphone. Yeah. 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 Right, and con by concierge medicine programs, if I could um, define that, that would be where we're focusing on the patient. What does the patient need? And it might not be shrimp cocktail on their tray, but, you know, what, is, what does the patient really need? You know, nurses have always been trained to find out what is most important to a patient and family. So they will absolutely be part of this. And, in fact, the only way health, health systems, hospitals, are going to make money is if patient satisfaction goes sky high. Um, and so I would hope to think that we are preparing nurses to do just that and be colleagues with our physicians for that. So I'm going to say thank you. You guys have been wonderful. I really appreciate all the attention, and thank you.